minds that plot destruction Sorcerer of death's construction In the fields of bodies burning As the war machine keeps turning Death and hatred to mankind Poisoning their brainwashed minds Welcome to the Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia on the National Community Radio Satellite. Listen to the Anarchist World this week, Australia's sacred cow, Slaughterhouse. Listen to analysis of local, national, international events. Listen to analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Welcome to this special edition of the Anarchist World This Week. My name is Joseph Toscano, and as we normally do in the first week of the year, we'll be talking about the Tanaminaway and Mallboyhina commemoration, which will be held on the 20th of January, which is Saturday the 20th of January this year, at the corner of Victoria and Franklin Street, Melbourne, at the Tanaminaway and Mallboyhina monument at midday, and at 1pm we'll be walking down to the Queen of Victoria markets, to what we believe are their last resting place. Uh, I just want to talk about the background to this monument. In 2004, a few of us, less than a dozen, gathered at the execution site to mark the event. And over the next 10 years, or next 12 years, we mounted a vociferous campaign uh, in order to have a significant monument established to the frontier wars in a major capital city. This has now occurred... Uh, in Melbourne, at the corner of Victoria and Franklin Street, outside the old Melbourne jail, at the site the execution of Tanaminaway and Hina took place on the 20th of January 1842, is a significant monument to the frontier wars. And every year, every year, we mark that event. And this year is no different. And as it's a Saturday, hopefully you can come, bring your children. Uh, you need to set aside about two hours, 12pm to 1pm, midday to 1pm, for the speakers, and then uh, we uh, walk silently down the road to the Queen Victoria Markets to what we believe is their last resting place. So join us Saturday the 20th of January, midday to 1pm. So what's the story between Tanaminaway, behind Tanaminaway and Mallboyhina? Who were these men? Why were, the first, why, why were they f- the first people publicly executed in Victoria? Why did the state feel that they needed to execute two Aboriginal men who'd come from Tasmania, who'd been brought across from Tasmania, the last survivors of a 33-year war of genocide in Tasmania. Tanaminaway, the son of Keheg Boyhina, was born on Robbins Island in Tasmania in 1812. He is also known as Pive, Napoleon, Jack of Cape Grimm and Tanaparaway. When he was born, European sealers had been hunting elephant seals and kangaroo on Robbins Island in northwest Tasmania for the last eight years. By the time he had turned 13, nearly all the elephant seals and kangaroos on the islands had been wiped out. One year later, the Tasmanian Land Company moved onto the northwest tribe's land, establishing sheep stations at Circular Head and Cape Grim. On the 27th of November 1827, an Aboriginal came across sheep 
and several shepherds at Cape Grim. The meeting ended in disaster for the North West Tribes when one Aboriginal man was shot dead and one shepherd was wounded in the scuffle that developed and the shepherds attempted to entice the Aboriginal women into their huts. A few days later, the Aborigines drove a mob of sheep to their deaths over the cliffs at Victory Hill in revenge for the Aboriginal man's death. Six weeks later, the shepherds ambushed a group of Aborigines mutton birdie, killing 30 men, women and children. They threw their bodies over the same cliffs, giving Cape Grim in northwest Tasmania its name. The northwest tribes continued to suffer at the hands of the sealers and shepherds. Aboriginal men were shot on sight, women were kidnapped and taken to the sealers' camp on Kangaroo Island, southern Victoria, where they were forced into sexual servitude. Within three years of white colonisation, only 60 of the 500 members of the Northwest Tribe had survived the onslaught. In June 1830, George Augustus Robertson, the chief protector of Aborigines in Tasmania, reached Northwest Tasmania. He was attempting to round up the remnants of the free tribes of Tasmania and resettle them on an island off the north coast to prevent them being exterminated. The only Aborigines in northwest Tasmania he came into contact with were six abducted women and one abducted man, an 18-year-old youth who had been named Jack of Cape Grim. He forced the sealers to give up the northwest tribal Aborigines by threatening to prosecute them for shooting their husbands. Robinson persuaded the Aborigines to come with him, promising they would be able to return to their tribal lands. Tanaminaway escaped from Robinson a few months after his initial capture because he realised that he had no intention of returning him to Robins Island. He was recaptured by Robinson's men soon after and became part of, a, of the group that accompanied Robinson in the search for the Big River people between October 1830 to January 1831. Tanaminaway developed a long and complex relationship with Robinson. In October 1835, he accompanied him to Flinders Island. Robinson held Tanaminaway in high regard and spoke of him as an exceeding willing, willing and industrious young man who was stout and well made of good temper and performed his work equal to any white man. Smallboy Hema, Robert Smallboy, Jemmy, Timmy, Tinny, Jimmy, Robert of Ben Lomond and Bob were some of the European names Smallboy Hena was known as. Smallboy Hena came from one of the inland tribes that had lived on the Ben Lomond highlands. He came into contact with Robertson as a relatively young man and in early 1830 accompanied him his party of white assistants and the survived survivors of the Bruny Island people, Waraday, his two sons Peter and David Bruny, and two young girls, Dre and Pagarley, on the difficult journey along the West Coast to help persuade the West Coast guerrilla bands to lay down their arms and move to Flinders Island. Morbohina was also part of Governor Arthur's infamous Black Line campaign that was conducted later that year to drive Tasmanian Aborigines away from the settled areas. Moore Borhina joined the dynamic leader of the Stony Creek tribe, Kanahulagna, Umara and Tanaminaway in October 1831 to find the Big River tribe and force them to join Robertson's group. In 1832, Moore Borhina accompanied Robertson on his second foray down the west coast. 
1835, 33 years after colonisation of Van Diemen's Land, Tasmania, Robinson boasted the entire Aboriginal population had been removed to Flinders Island. He received a reward of £1,000 for his services to the government. The 33-year war between the European colonisers and the Tasmanian Aborigines was finally over. Over 10,000 Aborigines had lived in Tasmania when Europeans first colonised it in 1803. By 1835, less than 350 had survived the Holocaust. Three quarters of those who were transferred to Flinders Island died within two years of that transfer. Only 89 Tasmanian Aborigines were left when Robertson decided to offer his services to the New South Wales government. The Tasmanian government, keen to see the back of the rest of the Tasmanians, offered to bankroll his generous offer, as long as he was allowed to take all the Tasmanian Aborigines that had survived the European Holocaust to the continental mainland. Move them out. George Augustus Robinson had big plans for himself and his Aborigines. He never had any any intention of returning the survivors of the 33-year Holocaust back to their tribal lands. Robinson wanted to use his domesticated Aborigines to civilise the mainland blacks. Even before John Batman set up his illegal settlement at Port Phillip Bay, the governor of Van Diemen's Land, Sir George Arthur, wrote on the 27th of September 1835 to Colonial Office in England, informing them that George Robertson was willing to take his Aborigines from Flinders Island to the newly established settlement at Portland Bay on the Australian mainland to open a friendly communication with the natives there. The Tasmanian authorities, keen to deport the last of the Tasmanian Aborigines, even offered to pay for their maintenance in New Holland. The New South Wales authorities strongly opposed the deportation of the Tasmanian Aborigines to the Australian mainland, although the British Colonial Office was in favour of the move. Governor Arthur highlighted that the deportation of the last surviving Tasmanian Aborigines to Flinders Island had greatly increased the value of Crown land in Tasmania, and he believed Robinson could, using the same tactics he used in Tasmania, do the same for the value of Crown land on the mainland. A British House of Commons Select Committee in 1837 recommended that a protector of Aborigines be appointed at Port Phillip because of the numerous reports of atrocities that were being committed by the new settlers against the Aboriginal population. Governor Arthur and the new Tasmanian Governor Philip, New Tasmanian Governor, sorry, Governor Arthur and the new Tasmanian Governor Franklin lobbied to have Robertson take up the, the post of Chief Protector at Port Phillip. Governor Franklin highlighted in August 1836 that life would be safer for the Port Phillip settlers if they allowed Robinson to bring across the Tasmanian Aboriginal survivors from Flinders Island to Port Phillip because of the mixing of domesticated blacks with the less civilised tribes at Port Phillip would make them less dangerous. He repeated Governor Arthur's office to pay for their upkeep at Port Phillip. A New South Wales Legislative Council committee headed by the Anglican Archbishop of Australia claimed in 1838 it would be a serious mistake to let the Tasmanian Aborigines on the mainland because of the risk of violence, rape and murder. 
The committee was concerned the lessons the Tasmanian Aborigines had learnt in their 33-year war against the white colonisers would encourage the local Aborigines to do the same fierce and hostile deportment towards the settlers. The Legislative Council Committee suggested that if the Tasmanian Aborigines were civilised, they should be set free, not deported to the mainland. On the 12th of December 1836, Robinson was appointed... Sorry, 1838, Robinson was appointed Chief Protector of Aborigines at Port Phillip. He was allowed to bring one family of Tasmanian Aborigines with him to act as his personal attendants. The move. Sir George Gibbs, the Governor of New South Wales, made it clear to the colonial office in England that he did not support Robinson's plans to bring across the Tasmanian Aborigines to Port Phillip. He only allowed Robertson to bring one family with him to act as his personal attendance. Robertson, full of his own self-importance, brought 16 of the surviving 89 Tasmanian Aboriginals with him to Port Phillip. Governor Gipps informed Robertson that the New South Wales government would only provide rations for a family of four. Robertson and the 16 Aborigines from Flinders Island arrived at Port Phillip in January 1839. He intended to use the Tasmanian Aborigines as mediators and educators. Even a man as hard as Robinson was shocked by the disease, destitution and wretchedness displayed by the Port Phillip Aborigines who were living on the outskirts of Melbourne. Robinson wanted Victorian Aborigines to be able to continue to live on government-owned remnants of land in the districts they had traditionally lived on. The Chief Protector introduced the Tasmanian Aborigines to the Yarra tribes almost as soon as he arrived. He, he noted in his diary, their reception was of the utmost friendly character. James Dredge, William Thomas, Edward Parker and Charles Seavright came to Australia from England to take up their positions as Assistant Protectors. The Assistant Protectors set up their tents on an old Aboriginal camping ground on the south side of the Yarra. Robinson moved into an abandoned police hut and the Tasmanian Aborigines had to build grass shelters for themselves. The party organised a great festival in February 1839 in which all the Port Phillip Aborigines and Melbourne townsfolk were invited. Beef, mutton and bread were supplied to everyone. The Aborigines initially refused to eat the food prepared for them because they were concerned that it would be poison as poison was liberally being used by the squatters to solve their Aboriginal problem. Games and competitions were held and fireworks were set off to show the Port Phillip Aborigines the protectors had come with good intentions. The Aborigines mistakenly assumed they would be supplied with free rations and goods to compensate them for the loss of their lands. Governor Gipps, concerned about the cost involved, complained to the colonial office. He severely limited the rations that could be given to Aborigines after October 1839. Assistant protectors deployed. George Augustus Robertson had four assistant protectors to help him ameliorate the lot of local tribes in the face of introduced disease, the ravages of alcohol and tribal warfare, interracial massacres and poisonings. The Chief Protector of Aborigines was expected to do his job because despite overt hostility from white settlers and the press and very little financial support from the Sydney Treasury, when Robertson arrived with 16 Aborigines from Flinders Island, 
No government supplies were allocated for the Aborigines. Some months after their arrival, Superintendent Latrobe provided rations for four of them. The Tasmanian Aborigines were expected to look after themselves. Robertson's four assistants had been appointed by the British Colonial Office. None had been to Australia before. Charles Dredge, Edward Parker and William Thomas were Methodist school teachers. The fourth assistant, Charles Sevry, was a former military officer who had been forced to sell his military off- office to pay off his gambling debts. On the 26th of March, 1839, after the new assistant protectors had familiarised themselves with their positions, they were allocated areas of responsibility by Robertson. Dredge was sent to northeast Victoria, Parker to the northwest, Seavright to the western districts, and Thomas were responsible for Melbourne and Western Port. Seavright was shocked to find on his first journey to the western districts two stations he visited had Aboriginal skull placed over the doors as a warning to an Aborigine that came to the station. Robertson was more interested in creating an empire for himself than taking interest in the plight of the Aborigines he was employed to protect. Faced with hundreds of Aboriginal people camped around Melbourne, many of them dying from typhus fever, dysentery, syphilis, pneumonia, the cold and famine, Robertson lost interest in the plight of the 16 Aborigines he brought across with him from Flinders Islands. Some were loaned out to work for Robertson's sons, others were expected to look after themselves. On the 2nd of October 1840, the New South Wales Governor released Robertson from any responsibility for the Tasmanian Aborigines he had brought to Port Phillip. The Importance of the Mile Creek Massacre In June 1838, at Mile Creek, north of Sydney, 28 Aborigines, mainly women and children, were tied up and hacked to pieces with swords. Their dismembered bodies were partially burnt. Seven assigned convicts were brought to trial for the massacre. They were acquitted by a jury after 15 minutes' discussion. The Anti-Slavery Society in England and the Aborigines Protection Society in London were disgusted by the massacre, the trial, and the comments made by the jurors involved in the trial. I look on the blacks as a set of monkeys, and the earlier they're exterminated from the face of the earth, the better. An active Aborigines Protection Society in London had a sympathetic colonial administration in England forced New South Wales Governor Gibbs to hold a retrial. After the second trial, the assigned convicts working as shepherds were found guilty. They were hung soon after the second trial on the 18th of December 1838. Interestingly, their masters, the squatters who ordered the massacre, were never prosecuted. The seven assigned convicts were executed to keep the colonial office off the New South Wales government's back. In May 1839, Gipps, the New South Wales governor, who was also responsible for the newly established Port Phillip settlement, declared in the government gazette he wanted to bring the settlers and the Aborigines to equal and indiscriminate justice. The seven of the seven assigned convicts in Sydney in late 1838 and Governor Gipps' announcement five months later, caused consternation among the Port Phillip squatters. The Port Phillip press funded against pseudo-philanthropists who didn't know what they were talking about. The open warfare that had been occurring between Aborigines and squatters in the Port Phillip region and the rest of Victoria became a secret covert war of destruction almost overnight. 
Nobody talked about what was happening. Bodies of Aborigines with gunshot wounds were dismembered and burnt. Robertson's assistant protectors were shunned. William Thomas, the assistant protector for the Melbourne region, reported the squatters and their shepherds were incensed about the Sydney hangings. Thomas reported that poisoning had become the favourite weapon of the coloniser and the blacks stopped accepting flour, milk and bread from the squatters because of the fear of poisoning. The local Aborigines now found themselves in an impossible situation. Driven from the lands at, from their lands at the point of a gun, concerned about the real possibility that their provisions they were being offered to them by squatters and assistant protectors alike could be poisoned, and unable to hunt and gather food on their traditional lands, many died of starvation. Those like Tullamarine and Jinjin, who stole potatoes growing in South Yarra or killed sheep to survive, were treated as criminals. The lucky ones, like Tullamarine and Jinjin, were arrested. The unlucky ones were legally hunted down and slaughtered. To be forewarned is to be forearmed. The Van Diemen's Land Aborigines were a little used to the Chief Protector Robinson. Moorboy Hina and Walter Arthur were sent to assist white explorers trek to South Australia. Waraday and a few of the older men were sent to work on Robinson's son's properties. He found the women hard to handle. They absconded on a number of occasions and had to be recaptured by Robinson. In August 1814, 1840, Superintendent Latrobe, concerned about Robinson's capacity to deal with the local Aborigines, asked the New South Wales Governor to relieve him of responsibility for the Van Diemen Land's natives. He was officially relieved of any responsibility for, the care, for their care on the 2nd of October 1840. Left to their own devices, they tended to gravitate to the Western Port region where Thomas the assistant protector for the Melbourne region had been sent to set up a blacks camp to distribute rations to encourage the hundreds of blacks that were camped around the settlement of Melbourne to move away from Melbourne. It is known that Isaac, one of the 16 Van Diemen Lane's blacks, was in early 1841 going around the Western Port region telling the settlers to arm themselves as five black fellows were coming down to cause mischief. On the pretense that they were going to join Thomas's group, Tanaminawe, Morbohina, Putirana, Traganini and Planobina, five of the original party of 16, vanished into the western port bush by August 1841. Planobina was Tanaminawe's wife. Morbohina was involved in a relationship with Traganini. William Thomas, the assistant protector's oldest son, wrote in his private journal, he, Jack of Cake Grimm, talked about what they had suffered at the hands of the white man, how many of their tribe had been slain, how they had been hunted down in Tasmania. Now was a time for revenge. They were not cooped up in, in an island, Flinders. They had unlimited bush to roam over at their will. The little band of two men and three women were familiar with the white man's ways. They knew how to use firearms. They knew how to survive in the bush. It was six years since Melbourne was formed. Over 8,000 whites lived in the new town. The local Aborigines had to a large degree been subdued and posed little threat to the settlers in Melbourne. In October 1841, fear and trepidation swept through the town as the exploits of the Tasmanian blacks became known. Many of the settlers had come to Melbourne from Tasmania. They were aghast, their old foes, the Tasmanian Aborigines, 
were, who were only defeated after a 30-year brutal and bitter struggle were legally, where Aborigines were legally shot on sight, were mounting a determined resistance to white settlement on the outskirts of Melbourne in Dandenong and the Western Port region. From little things, big things grow. In 1840, the Dandenongs in the Western Port region were dense bush. The stations set up by the squatters were established in clearings they had hacked from the scrub. The Tasmanian Aborigines began their campaign in the Dandenong region. They robbed Mount Mr Horseful, a squatter living in the Dandenongs of his, of his fowling piece. Walking up to 30 miles a day to evade capture, they robbed a number of other stations. They mainly stole firearms, sugar, flour and tea. The firearms were collected. The firearms they collected were much more than they could use themselves. Considering they were trying to move quickly through the bush to evade capture, it is highly likely they were collecting firearms to distribute to the local Aborigines. It was recorded that their first strike against the squatters was conducted with the help of local Aborigines. The Tasmanian Aborigines raided the hut of Mr Watson, the overseer of a small open-cut cliff face mine at Cape Patterson that had been established to provide coal for Melbourne. Following the normal practice, they spared the women in the hut ordering them into the bush, stole guns and ammunition and then set fire to the hut, ensuring that it couldn't be used by the settlers in the future. On one of the few occasions when they didn't get away without exchanging shots, the hut's overseer and his son-in-law, Walter Iman, began shooting at the party. The Aborigines fired back, wounding Walter in the leg. Walter Iman and Mr Watson made their way to a squatter station for assistance. A party of seven whalers who were walking along the beach from their camp at Ladies Bay, came across the deserted mining settlement. Soon after, shots were exchanged. Seeing some people a few hundred metres away in the bush, who they fought with the miners, two of the whalers, William Cook and Yankee, went into the bush to investigate. Within five minutes of them leaving, two shots rang out. All-out warfare. The Tasmanian Aborigines set up an ambush for Mr Watson and his son-in-law, William Iman, the two whalers, William Cook and Yankee, stumbled into the ambush prepared for Watson and Inman. Cook dropped dead as a result of a gunshot wound through the ear. Yankee shot in the side was killed by a number of blows to the heads. Samuel Evans, one of the whalers who was concerned about the missing men, organised the rest of the party to look for them. They walked into the path of Watson and Inman, who concerned about the approaching men shot over their heads. One of the whalers who continued the search for the men stumbled across their bodies on the beach. The whalers and miners saw the party of Aborigines who killed the whalers on a nearby hill. They chased them, but soon lost sight of them. They returned burying the bodies near the mouth of the Powlett River. Superintendent Latrobe had been notified two days earlier, the 4th of October 1841, that a party of Aborigines had robbed Mossy's station at Westernport. Latrobe decided that same night to send troops to deal with the situation. Mr Powlett, the Commissioner of Crown Lands, who came to Westernport to sell off the Aborigines' land to the squatters, and two police joined Lieutenant Samuel Rawson of the 28th Regiment, who had been sent to Westernport in early October to protect the squatters from Aboriginal attack. On the 10th of October 1841, four days after the killing of Yankee and Cook, Rawson and Powlett were notified about their deaths. They left in an open rowboat, hoping to quickly find the Tasmanian Aborigines. By this time, 14 armed men were involved in the hunt for the Aborigines. After a fruitless day of searching, 
they decided to return to Melbourne to find Aboriginal trackers to help them in their hunt. On their way back, they called in to see Mr Westaway and his labourers, who told them they had been shot at during the night. The Tasmanians had stolen guns and ammunition and £22 in banknotes. Tanaminaway, hoping to drive Westaway's workers from Westernport, burnt the notes, realising the timber cutters would leave their employ if he could not pay them. It took Rawson and Powlett five days by boat to get back to Melbourne. They called in all they called in all the squatters' camps they came across, raising the alarm about the Tasmanian Aborigines. On the 29th of October 1841, almost a month after the first raids had started, the Port Phillip Herald carried the first report about the raids across Daninong and Western Port that would be conducted by the heavily armed Aborigines. Rawson and Powlett arrived in Daninong on the 29th of October to meet up with a party of six policemen, six black trackers, Mr Thomas, the Aboriginal protector for the Melbourne area, a cart, a tent and a few squatters. The Tasmanian Aborigines had travelled from Cape Patterson back to Daninong on the same day the search party arrived to steal more guns, ammunition and supplies from the squatters. On the 30th of October, the Aborigines laid down the gauntlet to the pursuing party, leaving messages at the station they would not be taken alive and would fight to the last man and woman. By now, the police party had swelled to 18 men on horseback and six on foot. Fun and games. Powlett and his party, guided by the black trackers, soon came across the Tasmanian Aborigines' footprints. The Aborigines had robbed a station on their way to Western Port, stealing two guns, pistols and eight canisters of powder under the nose of the posse. The following day, the party hunting the Tasmanians had swelled to 24. 18 were mounted on horseback. The Aboriginal Black trackers had been given muskets and pistols when they became increasingly nervous about following fresh tracks into the bush. Hearing two gunshots and seeing people less than 200 yards away, the party rode across what first appeared to be flat, open spaces of land. Within a few minutes, the horses were flowering in a swamp. They were surprised the Tasmanian Aborigines had not taken advantage of the predicament by firing a few shots to the sinking crowd of horsemen. Mr Hobson, one of the pursuers, sowed some initiative when he mounted a tree and took a pot shot at somebody he saw hiding in the scrub. Surrounding the area, the posse demanded the intruder surrender or be shot. Imagine their surprise when one of the local squatters, Mr Anderson, and four of his servants, who had been shooting swans, came out of the scrub with their hands held above their heads. Anderson and his party joined the posse, as Anderson was one of the group which had found the murdered whalers four weeks previously. Somehow, this disorganised group stumbled across Tasmanians. They easily outran their mounted pursuers by fleeing across a swamp. The Aboriginal backtrackers, concerned about their safety, refused to continue the hunt. Powell and Rawlison soon realised they could not continue without the help of black trackers. They decided to disband the group. Powlett returned to Melbourne on the 2nd of November 1841. Rawson decided to stay at his station for a few more days. Becoming increasingly concerned about the Tasmanians' continued presence in the area, he returned to Port Phillip on the 8th of November. On the following day, the Port Phillip Herald reported that the Mary Chase, Powlett, Rawson and their posse were led on by the five Tasmanians. 
the Aboriginal protector Thomas, accompanied by three black pack trackers, continued to search for the Tasmanians. He located their camp near Westernport. Powlett and Rawson organised a new hunting party. They met at Dandenong three days later. Receiving information from Thomas that he had located the Tasmanian's camp, they set out for Westernport, adding new people to their posse as they called in at stations for help. The inability of the military and the police to locate and arrest Tasmanians had caused consternation in the district. Many of the stations on the Mornington Peninsula were deserted, their owners retreating to the relative safety of Melbourne. On the 16th of November 1841, Corporal Jennings and eight soldiers joined the new posse. The following day, nine mounted police, nine soldiers, four Aboriginal black trackers and six settlers, all armed to the teeth, made their way to the camp where the Aboriginal protector Thomas and four more black trackers were waiting. End game. The Tasmanians arrived at Anderson Station on the 17th of November. They waited till the men had left and then entered the house. Finding two women and a child in the house, Tanaminaway led them out and stood guard over them while Mobile Hina ransacked the house. The Tasmanians took all the weapons they could find and all the supplies they needed. In all the raids they carried out, they never harmed any women or children. The men that were shot in the raids were carried out that were carried out were usually shot in the heat of battle. They burned down the houses they raided to drive the squatters back to Melbourne. Although they hoped the local Aborigines would be inspired by their example, not one joined their little group. If it wasn't for the assistance of the Aboriginal black trackers, who became in the chase because they were promised they would receive guns and provisions for their help, it is highly unlikely the Tasmanians, survivors of bitter and brutal 33-year war against the British in Tasmania, would ever have been captured. Ironically, the black trackers received a few trinkets and blankets for their troubles, although they had been allowed to carry guns during the chase. The following day, the pursuit party, which had now grown to 29 men on horseback, arrived at Anderson Station. They were confident that with the help of the black trackers, they would soon overtake the two men and three women travelling on foot, who had caused consternation and panic among the squatters in the Daninong, Western Port and Mornington Peninsula region. The following day, they were camped less than a mile from where the Tasmanians had set up their camp. That evening, William Thomas, the assistant protector, volunteered to negotiate with the Tasmanians. The rest of the party, believing the end of the chase was over, refused Thomas' permission to negotiate. Soldiers, police and black trackers woke up about 4am on Saturday the 20th of November. They moved out in single file, armed to the teeth, hoping to win the Tasmanians' rebellion by daybreak. They walked about they walked about a mile through a lagoon and across sand hills until the Aboriginal trackers pointed out the smoke came from the Tasmanians' fire that was less than 30 metres away. The party was standing on top of a sand hill that overlooked the camp that had been set up in the gully below them. They formed a semicircle. The men less than two metres away from each other had advanced to within two metres of the campfire when all hell broke loose. The Tasmanians' dogs rushed at the posse. The Tasmanians tried to slip into the scrub amid a hail of bullets. Samuel Rawson, believing all the Tasmanians were dead, entered the camp. He found two of the women hiding under blankets. After putting handcuffs on them, he put a gun to their heads and forced them to call out to those in the scrub to surrender. A woman emerged from the scrub covered in blood. 
She had sustained a superficial wound to her head, the only casualty from the 30 to 40 shots that were fired at the heads of the sleeping Aborigines. One of the men who tried to escape from the scrub was captured, while the other man who had made his escape decided to return when the women who had guns trained at their heads pleaded for him to return. The five freedom fighters were handcuffed and had chains put on their legs while they quietly awaited their fate. The ravenous soldiers, black trackers, police and squatters made cakes from the 60 pounds of flour and sugar the Tasmanians had with them. The prisoners were marched through the bush and arrived in Melbourne six days later. They were taken before the police magistrate, Major St John, who took evidence from 12 witnesses. He committed Tanaminawaya Morbohina for the murder of William Cook and Yankee and the three women, Putirana, Traganini and Planabina, as accessories before and after the fact. Judge Willis. The five resistant fighters were put on trial for the murders of the whalers on the 20th of December 1841 before Judge John Walpole Willis. In 1841, five years after the establishment of Melbourne, the first Supreme Court was housed in a temporary structure at the corner of King and Burke Streets. Judge Willis arrived at Port Phillip on the 9th of March 1841. Before Willis's arrival, serious offenders who were committed for trial had to be sent with military and police escorts back to Sydney for trial. The expense involved in this undertaking gave Governor Sir George Gibbs the excuse he needed to send Judge Willis the most quarrelsome and difficult member of the New South Wales Supreme Court to preside over the newly established Supreme Court at Port Phillip. To say Willis had a colourful past is an understatement. Judge Willis left many bitter memories in his wake. His first appointment to the court in Upper Canada in 1827 ended when facing a revolt by the locals, he was removed by the British Colonial Office. Using his extensive contacts in England, he was able to obtain and hold on to an appointment on the British Guiana Court from 1831. Despite being removed from the court in Upper Canada, his attempts to return to the British Guiana Court after 12 months sick leave in England were bitterly opposed by the shell-shocked citizens of the community. Instead, he was sent to sit on the Supreme Court in Sydney in 1837. In 1840, the squatters who had established the settlement at Port Phillip were concerned about the large number of Aborigines who were camping on the Arab Banks. The Aborigines had come to the settlement to receive the rations they had been promised. In October 1840, in a show of force, 200 Aborigines were arrested after a dispute in the camp led to the death of an Aborigine. By the time Bon John appeared before Judge Willis, the other 199 had escaped. Bon John's defence counsel made the point that Port Phillip, having become appended to the British Crown by occupancy, and no treaty had been entered into, into by the natives. They were not subjective, nor the, had they submitted themselves to the British Crown. Judge Willis agreed with the Defence Council, citing examples in New Zealand, Ireland and the East Indies, making the point that Aborigines cannot be considered foreigners in their own lands. He ruled that Aboriginal law had legal force in Australia in matters concerning the relationship between Aborigines. Judge Willis ruled that he did not have the authority to Troy Bonjon for a crime he had committed against another Aborigine and set him free. Judge Willis's decision was overruled by the New South Wales Supreme Court. 
In May 1842, the colonial government in London stepped in when Judge Willis stated, My opinion, although overruled, still stays the same. The law that Judge Willis administered in Port Phillip was basically was based largely on the laws of England. His interpretation of those laws in the Bonjon case was overturned because his decision called into doubt the legality of the British colonisation of Australia. Legal manoeuvring part one. Judge Willis, magnetic towards Aborigines, did not extend to conflicts between the colonisers and Aborigines. George Bolden squatted an area near the Hopkins River in the Western Port District. When an Aboriginal man, woman and child attempted to cross his property to reach a camp set up by the Aboriginal protector, Charles Siegwright for Aborigines in the Western District, he attacked them on horseback with whips. Tatkia, the Aboriginal man acting in self-defence, tried to pull Bolden off his horse. Bolden shot him in the stomach and beat the Aboriginal woman to death. The child escaped to Seatwright's Aboriginal camp. Charles Seatwright, sickened by what had happened, reported the matter to Superintendent Latrobe. Bolden was put on trial, but was acquitted on the direction of Judge Willis. The jury, unhappy with Judge Willis' decision, told Bolden he did not leave the court without a stain on his character. In his reasoning for the acquittal, Judge Willis stated... There be no reservation in the grant, lease or licence from government in favour of the Aborigines. The possessor has also a right to turn off by any lawful means any person, whether white or black, who should trespass on his run. Superintendent Latrobe, shocked at Willis' judgment, asked Governor Gibbs whether the legal principles established by the case were sound and inconvertible. He believed there was a manifest inhumanity in attempting to exclude all Aborigines from the land. Latrobe was concerned that Willis' judgment meant that the squatters could recommence mastering what was left of the Aboriginal population. It might induce a return to the lamentable scenes of 1839 and the earlier part of 1840. On the 20th of December 1841, the five Van Diemen's Land Aborigines appeared before Judge Willis. A man described by Governor Gipps in 1843 as an apologist for the cruelest practices by some of the least respectable of the settlers on the Aborigines. If the defendants were unable to understand English or had been ignorant of Christian values, there was a slight possibility they would have been spared prosecution. Unfortunately, Robertson's civilising influence and his adamant assertions they had knowledge about the principles of religion and knew right from wrong sealed their fate. Judge Willis believed they were intelligent enough to understand court proceedings and didn't believe the humanity of the law that extended to an idiot or a lunatic extended to the five Aborigines standing trial in his court. In 1841, Aborigines were not equal in the eyes of the law. They could not testify or lay charges in the courts. The only way they could even achieve a modicum of justice was for a white witness to testify on their behalf. Considering the crimes against humanity that were being perpetrated against Aborigines were conducted in an undeclared frontier war where those squatters doing the killing were the only white witnesses, the ruling against Aboriginal evidence ensured that crimes committed against Aborigines never made it to the colonial courts. Five Aborigines were executed in Melbourne for crimes against whites between 1842 and 1848. Only one white man was convicted in court for killing Aborigines during this period and he only received two months' incarceration for his crime. Considering the legal gun 
was loaded against the Aboriginal defendants because they couldn't call Aboriginal witnesses to speak on their own defence or even even allow to tender an alibi, Redmond Barry, the defence counsel for Aboriginals for the Port Phillip region, mounted a spirit defence on their behalf. Just in case the name Redmond Barry seems familiar, the young Irish Aboriginal defence counsel, the same Redmond Barry, who was a judge presided over the trials of a number of the Eureka miners charged with high treason in 1855 and sentenced Ned Kelly to hang almost 30 years later in 1880. But that's another story. Redmond Barry began by arguing the defendants were not naturalised subjects of the Queen and half the jury would be, should be composed of people not subjects of the Queen. Judge Willis scoffed at this novel idea and refused to grant Barry's request. The Crown Prosecutor faced with the dilemma that one of his main witnesses, Samuel Evidence, one of the whalers who witnessed the whalers' murders, had not turned up to the trial, wanted to drop the charges of murder against the defendants. As the only defence, as the only evidence the prosecution had was the defendants' own confessions. Judge Willis, in no mood to accept this argument, ruled the murder charge would stand because he accepted Truganini's pre-trial confession that Tanaminawai and Mulboyina were responsible for the murders of the whalers. As the trial progressed, Barry highlighted the evidence was largely circumstantial and the confessions should not be accepted because they were from people in a state of terror. He attempted to win the jury's sympathy by highlighting what every settler in the colony knew but refused to acknowledge. We must remember the course of their destruction, at first insidious and private, then open and declared, which eventually swept a numerous nation off the face of their native country and transported the remnant to a foreign, to them distant shore. Barry asked the jury how to, how a people treated in this manner could be asked to quietly forget what had happened to them and be expected not to exact revenge for their disposition and misery. He was attempting to get the jury to put themselves in the place of the defendants. As there were no white witnesses to the murder, the prosecution's case swung on the confessions of Mulboheen and Truganini. Tanaminawa and Putirana and Planabina made no confessions when captured and while they were in custody. Evidence which directly implicated Truganini in the murder of the whalers was ignored by the court. The defendant's inability to give evidence or be cross-examined meant that the evidence given by Powlett, Watson and Robert Robbins, one of the whaling party, about Tunnaminawa and Morbohemian's omissions had a greater influence on the jury than it should have. George Robertson was called on to give character evidence for the defendants who he had known for 13 years. He praised Tanaminawe and told the court his conduct had always been exemplary. He told the jury that Borbohina, as Lang Holmes and Backer's servant, had accompanied them on an overland journey from Melbourne to Adelaide and back and had saved Langhorn's life when they were attacked by Aborigines along the Murray. Robinson told the jury that Truganini had saved his life in Tasmania and made the important observation... I have never found these persons wanting in humanity. Robinson sealed the defendant's fate when he told the court the accused understood the principles of religion and knew right from wrong. Late Monday night on the 20th of December 1841, the jury came to their decision in just 30 minutes. They found Tanaminawe and Morbohini guilty of murder and acquitted Truganini, Putirana and Planabina of all charges. The jury, moved by Barry's arguments, recommended mercy for the men on account of general good character and the peculiar circumstances 
under which they were placed. The next morning, the five were returned to court for sentence. Judge Willis discharged the three women into Robin's care and then addressed the accused. By the confessions of Bob Mulbohina and the statements of Truganini, there can be no doubt of your guilt. The punishment that awaits you is not one of vengeance, but one of terror. You will be taken to the place of execution and be hanged by the neck until dead. Architectural marvel. The site chosen for the scaffold was a small rise northwest of the building that was being built to house the overflow of Melbourne's first jail, the Eastern Watch House. The jail had four wards, four sleeping cells, three solitary confinement cells and two small airing yards where prisoners were occasionally taken out to exercise. Prisoners were not allowed to receive letters, food and clothing or visits, although these restrictions did not seem to worry the more wealthy prisoners. As a deputy sheriff who was responsible for the prison, the chief gaoler, the free tunkies and the clerk and messenger who ran the prison were not adverse to taking bribes were taking bribes. 18 convicts competed for the honour to win the post of public executioner. Some wanted the heads of the Aborigines as a bonus payment for their services, as Aboriginal heads were attracting a good price in England. A convict named John Davis won the contest. He was going to be paid £10, a fortune for a convict, for being the public executioner on the 25th January 1842. The clerk of works, James Ratterberry, was responsible for the erection of the scaffold. The scaffold, described as a narrow, shaky stage that barely afforded standing room for two prisoners and their executioner, consisted of two heavy uprights sunk into the ground, about 12 feet apart. A beam was nailed on top, around which the ropes were tied. Six feet above the ground, Short planks supported the drop. Another plank hinged at one end and secured at the other by, con- by wood and bricks, which, upon a signal from the hangman, could be tugged away by a rope, completed this architectural marble. This remarkable invention was reached by two ladders. Carnival time. On the eve of the execution, a Morbohina refused his supper. Tanaminua, on the other hand, ate heartily and smoked his pipe with the utmost tranquillity. The next morning, Tuesday the 20th of January 1842, people began arriving at the gallows trying to find the best spot to view the hangings. At 8am, the prisoners emerged from the Eastern Watch House, dressed entirely in white, including white calico caps. They were herded into a cart that, thankfully, much to the spectators' annoyance, had cloth stretched around it to give the condemned men some privacy. Mounted and border police led the cart through the city to Gallows Hill. The Port Phillip Herald reported, an immense crowd between 4,000 and 5,000 people, the greater part of whom were women and children. From the laughing and merry faces which were assembled, the scene resembled more the appearance of the race course than a scene of death. The walls of the body of the new goal were literally packed with spectators awaiting the awful scene as if it were a bull bait or a prize ring. A quarter of Victoria's white population had come to see the hanging. The detachment of infantry who paraded in their Sunday best tried to keep some order in the crowd. Aborigines had climbed into the surrounding trees to witness the executions. The cart eventually drew up at the gallows. 
The Port Phillip Gazette reported that the condemned men's arrival was met in explosions of uproarious merriment. Their arrival was followed by a 20-minute farce of prayer reading, which was interrupted with calls to cut it short. By this time, Morboyne had become extremely agitated. His moans, reported the Gazette, were terrible to hear. Morboyne's feelings broke out in the most heart-rendering groans. The terrified and piteous looks he threw around him, pressing against everyone that spoke to him as if to catch some chance of salvation, was terrible to witness. He trembled violently. James Dredge, one of the assistant Aboriginal protectors, wrote in his diary, the executioner tied their hands before they went up the ladder and chains hung from their ankles, making it nearly impossible for them. The poor wretches, in getting up the ladder, deprived the use of their hands, were obliged to cling to the bars with their knees and chins and be partly dragged and be partly pushed to the slaughter. Tanaminaway calmly ascended the flimsy ladder. Morbohina was dragged up the ladder after Tanaminaway had reached the scaffold. The crowd, seeing Morbohina shaking violently on the scaffold, went quiet. The executioner fixed the, no- the nooses, pulled down their nightcaps over their heads and hurried down the ladder. As the preacher uttered the key words, in the midst of life we are in death, the executioner and his assistants pulled the rope. The drop only descended halfway and a terrible scene followed. Thus the two poor wretches got jumbled and twisted and writhed convulsively in a manner that horrified even the most hardened. The executioner and his assistant did not seem to know what to do. A bystander rushed forward and knocked away the obstruction. Tanaminawai died instantly. Morbohina's noose had become displaced and he kept struggling for a number of minutes before he was strangled to death. The carnival move that had dominated the scene before the execution evaporated. The crowd angrily turned on the executioner who grinned horribly a ghastly smile. The bodies were left on the scaffold for the regulation hour. They were cut down from their nooses, placed in coffins and taken to the Aboriginal section of the cemetery, now Melbourne's thriving Victoria market. Join us Saturday, the 20th of January at midday. Join us to commemorate the execution of Tanaminawe and Morbohina at Australia's only significant monument to the frontier wars which was built as a result of a struggle by the Tanaminawai Moorboyhina Commemoration Committee. Join us at the corner of Victoria and Franklin Street, midday, Saturday, the 20th of January. Bring your children, bring your friends, and then walk with us at 1pm after listening to speakers down to the Queen Victoria markets to what we believe are Tanaminawais and Moorboyhina's um, final resting place. This program has been pre-recorded. I'll be back in the studio next week. Listen to the Anarchist World this week in 2018. Hopefully 2018 will be a great year for all activists because I know you'll become involved in many of the activities that we organise for people across the country. Thank you once again for listening to the Anarchist World this week on your local community radio station. Listen in next week to the Anarchist World this week via the Community Radio Network. That's it. See you next week. Evil minds that plot destruction Sorcerer of death's construction An analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Anarchist World This Week, Australia's sacred cow slaughterhouse. 10am every Wednesday 
Listen to The Anarchist World this week for an up-to-date analysis of local, national and international events. Poisoning their brainwashed minds. Oh!